leadership of Kevin and Tom. They're doing a good job for us. Three Kings. A beautiful Christmas hymn. Sometimes we maybe don't regard it too highly in our Bible-believing circles, but we should. It was composed and written by John H. Hopkins, Jr. in 1857. It is sung as if you were one of the kings. And it's based on the traditional understanding of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It goes like this, and you're familiar with the words, of course, of the first stanza which we sang this morning. We three kings of Orient are, now that's not Orient, are as a place, it's Orient, are bearing gifts we traverse so far, uh, afar. And then it says, field and fountain, moor and mountain. How many know what that means? You know, basically what it's saying is fertile field, we traverse across fertile fields and flowing fountains, but we also cross the moor or wasteland as well as mountains that we have to cross over so that we can follow this distant star or yonder star. And then it goes on in the refrain, O star of wonders, star of light, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, Guide us to thy perfect light. Now remember, you're singing as one of the kings coming from the east, going to the west. The next stanza, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, seizing never over us all to reign. The third stanza reads, Frankincense to offer have I, as one of the kings, Incense belongs to a deity nigh or near. Uh, the word owns a deity near or nigh is really belongs to a deity nigh, referring to his deity. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. The fourth stanza. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume and speaks through a sense of smell, breathing a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. And the last stanza, Glorious now behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, sounds through the earth and skies. This is a good Christmas carol. It's a fun song to sing, but it's a good Christmas carol because it emphasizes much about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, about the baby Jesus, about who He is. In this carol, we learn about Him being, or it's emphasized to us, that He is the perfect light, that He is a King forever, that He is God on high, that He is a sacrifice, or will be a sacrifice and that he is worthy of our worship and praise. However, some of the details <clears throat> portrayed in the story of the carol do not line up with the story in Scripture. And this doesn't mean that the carol is of no use. It's great use. It's a wonderful carol. 
But there's just a few details that I think went a little bit too far in not being quite with the text of Scripture. Furthermore, why did Matthew, writing to Jewish Christians between 50 and 60 AD, include this story in his gospel to begin with? None of the other gospels have it. Why did he have it? Why did he include it? I'd like to begin this morning by setting the record straight regarding just a few of the details that are often contradicted not only by the carols we sing, but by countless nativity scenes we erect each year, as well as the Christmas pageants and plays and programs we reenact the night of the birth of Jesus as well. If you have your Bible or would like to follow along in the note sheet that I trust was passed out to you, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were from the east. Now, literally, it says the magi or the wise men, it's the Greek word magi, from the rising of the sun, from the east. Now, Matthew was a Jew, writing from the perspective of a Jew, and in light of the Jewish Christians that he was ministering to, and directions were given in reference to Jerusalem. So if you were looking east from Jerusalem to the rising of the sun, you would think of certain countries and regions that are part of that. Now, our carol uses the term Orient, R. Orient, are traversing so far. But the Orient, when we use the word Orient, what do we usually think of? Japan. China, Southeast Asia. But if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem and you were talking about the rising of the sun, you wouldn't think of Japan. You would think about those regions and countries to the east of you, countries, kingdoms like Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, Persia, which would be modern-day Iran, Media or Kurdistan, as sometimes we call it today, all of which were east of Israel. These were lands of the Gentiles. Now, I, I presume the map has been up there, and you can see the, the distance. It's just directly east of Jerusalem. About, uh, Iran would be somewhere around 1,000 miles, 1,200 air miles, something like that, and depending on where you go in Iran, and Iraq would be about 500 miles, five to 600 and they couldn't go directly because they'd have to cross over the Fertile Crescent to get over into Israel. They couldn't go across the desert uh, in a caravan. In those days, they wouldn't be wise to do that. Furthermore, we read that these were magi, wise men. And this is a word that originated with the Medes, not known, now known to us as the Kurds, as well as the Persians or the Iranians as we know them today. It was a word that came to refer to a whole class of great and influential men of learning and authority in that culture who spent their lives as scholars studying the world around them. They were highly skilled men in applying their knowledge of philosophy, science, medicine, mathematics, astronomy to life. They applied these, these disciplines to life 
and were regarded for their wisdom in being able to uh, contribute much to their culture. And as a result of that, they were highly, so highly esteemed that they became ministers and advisors to the rulers of Media Persia, which were joined as a, as a kingdom at one period of time. It's also true that many of these magi or wise men did gravitate to the occult, which gave rise to words like magic. They were called magi, magic, magical, or magician. These are all words that relate to that word magi. And many of them became obsessed with astrology, which God strongly condemned in the Word of God in several places. However, it seems clear that some of these men did not gravitate into the occult, but saw in their studies of the stars and mathematics and medicine the hand of the Creator, the hand of the one true God who precisely made and perfectly balanced the heavens and the world about us, and even our own bodies. The Scriptures emphatically teach that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. It says in the book of Romans that since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen in the world around us, being understood by the things that are made by creation, even His eternal power and Godhead. They undoubtedly learned much through their studies of all of these disciplines that related to the natural world in that they began to understand that there was a God who was personal, that He had power, that was he eternal and infinite, perfection, truth, omniscience, all of these attributes of God, I'm sure, were driven home to their hearts. And so it's reasonable to assume that their thirst to know the one and true God brought them providentially into close contact with Jewish beliefs. Now you say, well, how would they have any contact with Jews? Remember back in the days of the Babylonian and the Assyrian deportation of Jews, many Jews were carried off to those lands. And even today, Jews live in Iraq, in Iran. It's not exactly a safe place for Jews to live today. But in that day, it was. And many Jewish people live there. And therefore, it's reasonable to assume that these magi, if they were seeking the one true God and Creator, had providentially been brought into contact with Jewish believers in the true God. And through them, they evidently heard about the work of God in delivering and preserving the nation of Israel until their disobedience resulted in their being cast out of the land that He gave them. Through their contacts with Jews, they became familiar with the Old Testament and its prophecies, especially with the prophecies about the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Coming One, the King who would, who would be appointed by God to deliver, lead, and shepherd His people and would rule over the world through them in righteousness and peace. They heard all this. And that He would be a Savior not only of the Jew, but of all the nations of the earth. And that through... Through Him, as the seed of the woman and a Jew, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So when a very unusual star appeared in the west from their vantage point, looking back west, they were in the east, they were compelled to follow the star. 
Recounting the facts about these wise men, it seems unlikely that they were kings. As suggested by our traditional carol, We Three Kings. They were wise men, magi. Nor does it tell us how many of them made the journey. Maybe there were three, and it's usually understood there were three gifts, and therefore it's an assumed thing that they were three three magi or three wise men. But there could have been a whole entourage of wise men that came bearing these three gifts together. So we don't know for sure just how many were there. One thing is sure, these were great men from the East, men of intelligence and learning, men who studied the stars which declare the glory of God and the Creator. These were also men who were somewhat familiar with the truth about the God of the Jews and the promise that that God had made to send the Messiah King to deliver His people and all who worship Him and seek to know Him. In verse 11, we read that they fell down and worship and, and humbled themselves before Him in worship and adoration. So clearly, these were men that we need to respect. They were Gentiles, but, res- but men worthy of our respect. Now, let's continue with the story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Where is he? They didn't say, Is there a king that's been born? They had no doubt about the birth of the king. They had no question about who he was. He was the king of the Jews. And then it says, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In the interest of time, I want to look at this, his star, but I don't want to explore all of the possible explanations, most of which try to explain the star as a comet, a supernova, or perhaps an alignment of planets. Furthermore, it would lead them to the very house where the star, the star would lead them to the very house where Jesus was. If it was a comet, it would have annihilated the whole region. It just doesn't make much sense, in my opinion. I believe the only logical and acceptable explanation is that the star was a supernatural phenomenon that was directly from God. It had become known, or what became known in Jewish circles, as the Shekinah, or dwelling glory of God. This is a visible manifestation of the very presence of God in the midst of man and man's world, which God created. It was the Shekinah glory of God, somewhat veiled in a cloud that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was the backglow of the Shekinah glory of God that Moses saw as God passed by. And God told him, you cannot see the full effulgence, the brilliance of the, of the, of the glory that is passing before you, or you would die. But I will put you in the cleft of the rock and you will see the afterglow of my Shekinah glory. 
It was the Shekinah glory of God that showed through the body of our Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The body itself acting like a, a tent to protect those who were watching. For if they had seen the full glory without being veiled in part by the body, they would have been blinded or killed instantly. It was the Shekinah glory of God that I believe captivated the attention of the Magi in the east. They were in the east from Israel, but they were looking west. A brilliance that led them to think, what is this? A brilliance that would lead them in time to the very home in which Jesus was staying. A glory so brilliant that it created wonder and awe and motivated them to put together an entourage, a caravan, and travel some 600 to 1,000 miles to Israel. A three-month journey at least. It may have initially appeared to the searching eyes of astronomers like the Magi as a, as a light in the distant heavens. An unusual light that hadn't been there before. And as it came ever closer to earth, it got into a point where it was in proximity with the earth and began to orbit with the earth. As the earth turned, it stayed right on target, pointing down at the very heart of where Messiah, Jesus, would be born. We would know it as Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is just a suburb of Jerusalem, about three miles from the center of town, three or four miles from the center of town. As the earth turned, that star would be gently moving closer and closer as the birth of Jesus approached. And at the moment of Jesus' birth, the brilliant star manifested the glory of God, perhaps began descending slowly down to a tiny village named Bethlehem of Judea on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And eventually, as it passed into the atmosphere of the earth, I would think that perhaps it would have been veiled by thick clouds in the upper atmosphere. At times, the clouds would maybe part enough to provide the seeking heart of people like the Magi. A glimpse of this brilliant star which manifested the glory of God. And the star continued its descent, moving closer and closer to Bethlehem and the stable where Jesus was about to enter this world. Then at the moment that Jesus was born, the clouds parted enough to provide the brilliant light of this glorious manifestation of God's presence to shine over the earth for a short time. Keep in mind, it was in the middle of the night and most of the people were asleep. Unconcerned and unfazed by the thought that God may be fulfilling a promise that He made to them years and years before in the Old Testament and kept making over and over again. But there was a particular group of shepherds that were watching their flocks by night. And they were overwhelmed by this brilliant light. What it could possibly mean, they asked themselves. And so we read in Luke account, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. 
Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into the heavens that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. They were there to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Veiled in thick clouds, or those made invisible to the naked eye of men in some other manner, the star continued to hover over Bethlehem where the baby Jesus was lying in a manger in a stable because there was no room for him in the end. Eventually, Mary and Joseph and the baby would move out of the stable and into a home. But the star, still shrouded in thick clouds, continued to remain fixed over the town of Bethlehem. Now we return to the story of the Magi. In chapter 2, verse 11, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born, who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Clearly, these Gentile Magi expected all Jerusalem to be living and rejoicing over the birth of their Messiah King. They came expecting Jerusalem to be excited. Really on fire. And everyone would know where to find Him. So they inquired, where is He? And no one seemed to know or care. They just wanted to go and worship Him, but no one had an idea what was going on with the exception of a handful of shepherds and those close to Mary and Joseph. They came to Jerusalem because Bethlehem was only three miles away and would have actually been considered a part of Jerusalem by outsiders like the Magi. However, instead of rejoicing, Herod the king and all Jerusalem seemed startled by the report. Notice verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, frightened, terrified. And all Jerusalem with him. Herod was terrified. He was 69 to 70 years old of age, trying to hang on to his power base. And he was like a gangster. If anybody threatened his power base, he killed them. And so here are the Magi showing up saying there's another king that's been born. And he's thinking this can only inflame an already volatile situation and encourage the Jews to rise up against me or against Rome who will then rise up against me. However, it's not just Herod that was terrified. It was all Jerusalem. The whole place was a powder keg ready to go off at any moment. It's like Iraq today. Perhaps they had heard reports spread by the shepherds. 
and had just begun to put those reports to bed when all of a sudden a bunch of Gentile wise men show up asking where the Messiah King was so they could go worship Him. You would think Jerusalem would be ecstatic, but instead they seem paralyzed by this. By the uncertainty of what is going on and what's going to happen to their comfortable lives. Herod, however, isn't going to take this lying down, so he moves into action. And first of all, he says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, verse 4, this was sort of a Jewish Supreme Court regarding religious matters, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. How interesting. These men knew immediately where to go in their Bible to find the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew them well. But they remained unmoved by them. Unaffected. None of them began a search for the Christ child. They were unbelieving scholars of the Bible. Today we would call them religious liberals. Herod, however, was going to do something about it. If this is true, he must act to destroy this child. And so in verse 7 we read this, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Why did he do that? That was so that he would be able to enact plan B if plan A failed. Plan B was his backup plan, which he would put into action later when he killed all the males under the age of two years old. Plan A, however, was the immediate plan, and that was to find the child right now, if the wise men would cooperate and tell him where he was, and he would go and kill him. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. However, these God-fearing men, being naive and easily deceived, go forth to find the Christ child and worship him. Verse 9. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Here we have the star appearing again. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. After being appalled, put yourself in their position. They come into Jerusalem thinking the whole town is going to be excited about the birth of their king. The, fat, the town flat doesn't know anything about it or could care less. There's an indifference that struck a, a chord that I'm sure was depressing from their viewpoint. They traveled all this distance so they could come and worship Him and they're right there in the same town and nobody knows or cares. And He's actually their King, not the King of the Gentiles. Only in a secondary sense. And so they went forth and I'm sure they were down, discouraged. And then there was the sudden appearance of a star. It was like seeing an old friend leading to great joy on their part. Evidently, the star which had likely been hovering over the town of Bethlehem, veiled by thick clouds, in my opinion, descended in some sense and assumed a form and an intensity as God's Shekinah glory was able, obviously, to do. 
that could actually guide these wise men to the very house where Jesus was staying. The Messiah came. And so we read in verse 11, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The house. Not a stable. Not the inn. But the house where he was staying. After seeing countless nativity sets, and it was funny this morning, we're going through our opening our presents, and my, my wife got my daughter this nativity set she was so happy about, really wanted. And it was a lovely nativity set. And I'm all for them, so don't get the wrong opinion here. But I had to needle her a little bit. I said, well, does it have the wise men there? And I was telling her sort of where I was going with the message. And she says, well, what we'll do is we'll have the nativity set, and I'll put the wise men out here on their way. She's thinking, that's great. It's time to set the record straight. The problem is the confusion between Luke's account and Matthew's account. The shepherds in Luke came with haste, you read. They were out in the field. They saw the Shekinah glory. The very night Jesus was born in the stable. And what did they do? Immediately they came with haste to the stable and the manger. The wise men over the, on the other hand had been traveling since His star appeared to them in the heavens. Probably traveling for more than three months to make this journey by caravan from the east, from Iraq and Iran. Furthermore, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 11, the wise men came to the house after Jesus was born. After, for Matthew, is measured in terms of hours or Matthew is measured in terms of weeks and months. Whereas in Luke's account, it talked about the, the shepherds coming right after they saw the appearance of the Shekinah glory. And that was measured in terms of hours and days. By the time the wise men arrive at the house where Mary and Jesus were, Jesus could have been as much as two years old because Herod had already predicted from the time they saw the star just how old Jesus might be, and perhaps allowing some time for variance in age and the way children look. And so he could have been maybe two years old. Now, I don't think he was. I think he was probably much younger than that, more in the, what we would call an infant stage. But certainly he was not yet a baby, still a baby in a manger, or even in a cradle. Who did they stay with? Because the shepherds spread the story of his birth, it's likely that there were some people who did believe their report and invited Mary and Joseph and Jesus to stay with them or to stay in one of their homes until they were ready for travel. And so again we read, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They fell down. An act of submission. And they worshipped. They ascribed worth to him. They valued him and showed their worth, their, their respect for him as a person. How much did they value him? How much did they feel he was worth? And that was reflected in the gifts that they give. You know, our gifts say a lot about us, too. And you know, we've been opening gifts this morning, many of us. And sometimes you get gifts that, or give gifts, 
that you didn't really spend enough time thinking about. And maybe thinking about the person you were giving them to. And I think that sometimes that happens with us. But these wise men had been thinking about just what they would give. And they wanted to give something extremely precious to them. But something that would be extremely appropriate for one who was born the king of the Jews, who would be none other than God with us. And who would die for us. What did Jesus get for Christmas, kids? He got gold. He got frankincense and he got myrrh. And you're thinking, whoa, what's that all about? Well, tradition says that the gold was for him being a king, frankincense was for him being God, and myrrh was for one destined to die. I think a fuller consideration of these gifts might help to refine and improve our traditional understanding just a little bit. First of all, gold speaks of that which is of precious, very, very precious and very valuable, obviously. It still is the metal of choice. To give gold to a king was to acknowledge that king's greatness, his glory, and the majesty and the value of his person. In this case, it was appropriate because this king was God. King of kings and Lord of lords. Frankincense literally means pure incense. It's that stuff that smells. They had it in the temple and you burn it and it fills the place with a, a fragrance that's pleasant and pleasing. In the Bible, frankincense is almost always associated with service to God and with offerings that we give to God, which are pleasing to Him, which is symbolized in the pleasing odor of the fragrance of frankincense. In this case, it was given to this king, Jesus, for his life, which would be devoted to the service of the Lord and which would be a life most pleasing to God. And remember how often, several times, God says, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Myrrh was a kind of perfume that was used to make things smell good that usually smell bad. It created an, a pleasing or acceptable odor in the presence of something that would normally not smell very good. It was used of perfuming some kind of some bedding and some garments. But it was especially used in the preparation of a body for burial. You recall the Mary's comment about the burial of Lazarus? Lord, don't, don't open the tomb now. He stinks. Mary had undoubtedly served its purpose. Well, myrrh, in the case of Jesus, the Messiah King, was given in view of his death and sacrifice. His sacrifice and death would be acceptable to God as a just payment for the sins, not only of the Jews, but of all mankind. For Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. A summary might go this way. Gold was for his deity. Frankincense was the fragrance of his life, was for the fragrance of his life. And the intercession, his intercession on behalf of others in myrrh was for his sacrificial death. This is what Jesus got for Christmas. But now bringing this to conclusion, I'd like to conclude with one question this morning. So what? What's the point? And in order to understand that, we really need to ask, why did Matthew, writing to Jewish Christians... 50 to 60 years later, 
include this story in his gospel when none of the other gospel writers included it? Why did he include it? In 50 to 60 AD, the church was in transition from being primarily a Jewish church to becoming a Gentile church. More and more Gentiles were believing and following the Lord Jesus Christ than Jews. In fact, there was widespread persecution of those who called themselves Christians by the Jews. Matthew wrote to strengthen the faith of Jewish Christians living at this time who not only suffered persecution from their own fellow Jews, but who saw the church that they loved becoming more and more Gentile. In essence, Matthew was saying, don't let this situation surprise you. In chapter 1, he recounted the birth of Jesus and identified Jesus as, in verse 1, chapter 1, verses 17, 18, he refers to him as the Christ. In chapter 1, verse 21, he refers to him as being called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins and he would be a man who was able to die. In verse 23, it says, Matthew wrote, he says, Jesus will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In other words, he was identifying Jesus as the Christ in whom the, the very deity of God dwelt in his bodily form, even though he would be also fully man. What a gospel, what a good news story to think that the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, would come to the world, our world, and be born so that he could save us from our sins and establish his kingdom on earth. He would indeed be the Messiah, the coming one, who was anticipated from the very beginning of man's history on the earth, and through whom all the families, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. How would his own people respond? They marveled. We read, but they did not go in haste to see the babe lying in a manger. Apparently only a few lowly shepherds showed up that night. Did they celebrate? Did they worship God? Did they study and search their Bibles? No. In fact, they were only, we read, they were only troubled by the whole thing. They were terrified by the reports that the Messiah had been born. It was indicative of the kind of reception Jesus would receive throughout his life and his ministry. And you know the story over and over again. They would be in his face and he could perform a miracle. He could put his hand on a blind man's eyes and heal the man. And they would say, oh, somebody did that other than God. He would speak things with authority. And the people could sense that only God could say these things. And yet they would say, the leaders would say, no, we do not believe him at all. They rejected him over and over again as the Messiah. And eventually those same leaders would lead the people to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The intensity of their hatred for Jesus was now, as Matthew wrote this book, 50 to 60 years after Jesus was born, it was now being poured out on the church that bore his name. So where could Matthew find a story that would show the kind of response deserving such a Messiah and King? Under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he would go to the Gentiles. And specifically to a group of pagan wise men who had wised up 
and who had searched out in their own lives to know the true and living God. And because they'd wised up in their search, the true and living God revealed Himself to them in the person of His Son. These were Gentiles living in what we know of today as the most difficult of areas to reach with the Gospel. Iraq, Iran, southern Turkey. Matthew's point, our own people will not respond to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, but the Gentiles are responding and will respond. And praise God for all who respond, whether they be Gentile or Jew. Praise God! That's what He's saying to them 50 or 60 years after the birth of Christ as they suffered persecution by the Jews and saw Gentiles filling their churches. The Jews, by and large, were not responding to their own Messiah in this age. Humble shepherds did. Searching Gentile wise men did. And God-fearing Gentiles were even responding as Matthew wrote. And what are they finding when they search and find Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God? John, the Apostle, said it well in his first chapter when he wrote these words. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. Friends, on this Christmas of 2005, I hope every one of us here has put our faith and believed on the name of Jesus. Because it's in believing in Jesus that we become a child of God. That's the one and only response that Jesus wants from those who are outside, if you will, and have not yet become believers in Christ. This is the one thing He was looking for. He was looking for people that were searching for Him, and then He would lead them to the Messiah. And what He would ask of them is to believe in Jesus as my Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the earth. Have you believed in Him today? And if we have, the next response is to fall down at His feet and worship Him. Not with silver and gold, but with our very lives. God will be pleased when He sees that kind of worship. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank You for Your love and goodness to us. We pray You'd help us today to take to heart these thoughts from Your Word. A Christmas in which we celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.